me. I'm going to just pray a quick prayer because Mandy prayed a good prayer for me. So, Holy Spirit, we simply pray that you would honor the preaching of your word tonight. Holy Spirit, you are the helper and you are the spirit of truth. So help us to discern truth tonight as we look at the word. And I pray that you would encourage every heart. Challenge us as well in our walk with you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 24, 37 to 39. I'm going to look at three people tonight, and I'm going to look at them from a different angle. We're going to look at Noah, we're going to look at Anna, and we're going to look at John. Briefly and from an unusual angle. And I want to start by reading what Jesus said about this man named Noah. Very interesting passage. This is when Jesus is teaching this end-of-the-age scenario, which with all the things going on in our country is becoming all the more applicable and discernible. You know, when Jesus says things in Matthew 24 like, you know, many are going to come in my name and you're going to hear wars and rumors of war and pestilences and famines. When you first hear that and everything's good in the world, you're like, what? But when you start to see things that are unfolding right now, like a global pandemic and racial strife and the economy suffering and widespread death, you start to go, okay, there's, there's some truth to the things that Jesus was telling, and I might not have been able to discern it at first, but I'm going to pay a little more attention to that. And so I would uh, encourage you to do so. But when he's giving this teaching that we kind of call this end-of-the-age teaching, he mentions Noah. Interestingly, so let's go over there to Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven. He says, as the days of Noah were, so it will be when the Son of Man comes again, is what he's basically saying. Like it was in Noah's generation, it will be like that when he comes again. And that's the great hope of the Christian faith. I mean, the, the great and ultimate hope that we as Christians have is not more comfort and a better life. I mean, I, I would love that. The ultimate hope is that Jesus comes back and makes the world perfect and we get to live with him for eternity. What an amazing concept. We need to begin to think of this more and more. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in those days uh, before he comes back. And then he goes on to say, for as in the days before the flood, here's the point. He says, they're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. What does that mean? They were doing life just like us. Everybody was just kind of doing their thing, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, you know, just normal life. They would have families. They had kids. It was just like today. In our day, that, I mean, it was just normal life. And then the, there was a day Noah finished the ark and these little drops started falling out of the sky for the first time. And it was at that moment where people were, what is happening? And there was a sudden breakthrough of a, a severe move of God. And the, we know in that generation there was a cleansing of the whole earth and only Noah's family survived. Jesus says there is an intensity 
coming that is like the days of Noah. And we need to begin to wrestle with this theologically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. We need to begin to wrestle with what some would call hard sayings so that when they begin to trickle down, we're not surprised by them. And although I could go off and teach, you know, all the things I believe are going to happen, and I believe there's a, there's a time and a place for that, and we do that, and we will continue to do that, what I want to specifically highlight tonight was the, the way Noah had to live. And then I'm going to look at it a little bit quickly with Anna and with John through this lens of irrelevancy. We know from Scripture that Noah was just going about life just like us. He had a a wife, and he had kids, and he needed food to eat. And if he was like me, he probably preferred beef and chicken. So he's, you know, he's catching animals, and he's, you know, he's thinking, I got to eat tonight, and I got to make, you know, an, an, an extra hut for my little kids or whatever they did back then. He was just like us, but there was a moment in time, it says in Hebrews eleven seven, where God divinely warned him of something yet future. In Hebrews eleven seven, it says, by faith, Noah heeded a divine warning that was given to him. And so Noah's life turned like on a hinge. Normal, 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 and then God spoke to him. That something is coming that is so profoundly devastating, you can't fathom it, but I need you to build a boat. Now, here's the thing that we don't process very well because, um, because we're so used to rain. In that day, most scholars and theologians that, that would uh, look at Noah's, the, the interpretation of Noah was uh, and the uh, how God ran things in that day and age was that the the ground watered itself. It had never rained up until that point in time, and so this concept of yeah, it just rains sometimes that wasn't normal to them. What was normal to them is that just the plants just kind of were watered. This concept of stuff falling out of the sky and never stopping until the world was flooded, that was new, and yet it was on the horizon. And God spoke to Noah, this is coming, this is real, you need to do something. And so Noah begins to build, as we all know, this is you know Sunday school since we were three years old, we know the story, he builds this giant boat. This was not a figurative boat. This was not a spiritual boat. This was a literal boat that literal animals were brought to. And he spared a whole bunch of animals and his family because he obeyed God. Now, here's the thing, though. Nobody listened to Noah. Not a single person on the earth. Which means Noah was considered really weird. The things Noah talked about and the way Noah lived and the things he built were wildly irrelevant to normal life in that day and age. It, when people walked by Noah's building project, they scoffed. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, what would I think if I saw a guy like that building a massive boat? It had never rained we're just, you know, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. We're doing normal life. What? And, 
The Bible also tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So not only is he building this ark that is just ridiculously massive, he's preaching while he's doing it. So people would come by, Noah, what, what are you doing? This is just ridiculous. What's this stuff about a flood? Rain coming out of heaven? We've never heard of this. This is new, and, and Noah would say, get right with God. There's something coming. I'm not totally sure, but I was warned, and so I'm building this boat, and it'll keep my family safe. You should heed this. And what we know is nobody believed him. Nobody. doesn't mean he was a bad preacher. It means that's where the state of the hearts were. The hearts of people, we know from Scripture, it says that Every single person's heart in that generation, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, read it on your own, had become evil continually. That's what the Bible says. Every single person in that generation, their heart had become evil continually. And so the Lord says, I can't, I, I need to step in to correct the course of redemptive history. And I'm going to use this man named Noah. Grace found this man named Noah. He obeyed. And, the, and then, you know, we, we know the rest of the story. The flood came, everything dies. And if you've ever seen like a kid's movie, it's pretty graphic, even the Sunday school version. Like the one guy still trying to scrape onto the boat and then he drowns. It's like, geez, how, why did it have to be that severe? But... That's what it had to be like in God's economy of justice. And it's all a foreshadowing of a greater reality, of a greater judgment yet coming, and a greater Noah who will uh, save his people from their sins. And so, but think of that. Think of your Noah or your Noah's wife. And you have to bear this stigma of day in and day out, people think you're genuinely insane because you're preaching what God's saying. Now, there are people who are out there who are genuinely insane. But Noah was right. Noah had heard the divine warning and he was preaching righteousness. And there was, there was a man in that generation who was locked into what the Lord was saying and no one believed him. Here's the thing. When God raises up genuine prophets and prophetic voices in the cities and in the nations of the earth, in any generation but our generation, we think we'll automatically believe them. The reality is they have a very challenging message that is difficult to respond to because it's pointing to something that's yet future that we have not seen. And I would say as we're going through what we're going through in this day and age, we need to be more open, not to anything, but when someone begins to preach the Bible and it's calling us to, you know, hey, we need to obey God. You know, there is stuff coming that is intense. We need to begin to wrestle with this stuff. We need to begin to give credence to it. So Noah, he's seemingly wildly irrelevant. What's this boat? Your message about being right with God. No one believes him. No one gets on the boat. No one thinks anything of it until it starts raining. Suddenly, Noah's very relevant. And his message is very relevant. And his family's like, well, Dad, we thought you were crazy, but actually you're not. 
And then the three ladies that married into the family, they're like, oh, thank, thank, thank the Lord I married into that family. I mean, can you imagine you're on the boat and the whole world's flooded and like the three girls are off in the corner going, thank you, Lord, we married into this family. We thought they were a little crazy, but it was God. I just think that's probably how it happened because they were human. Eight people survive in that day and age. And they, you know, after the flood, they repopulate the earth, etc., etc. But again, here's the thing. Think about how the scorn and the way they had to be viewed by people was difficult. I mean, the, the rejection of it. And I mean, if no one ever, ever listened to what I said, I'd be like, well, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Noah had a unique grace on his life just to keep building, to keep preaching, knowing that it was the Lord. And here's the thing. We've got a unique assignment here that the Lord's asked us to build. And it's seemingly a little bit irrelevant right now, but there's coming a day it will look very relevant. There's houses of prayer, there's praying churches, praying ministries springing up all over the world, and there's still much of the church is like, what is that? But there's this sense of there are things coming, there are things looming over the nations of the world that we must be prayed up for, we must have clarity biblically about. And so God's raising up these people all over the world. We need to begin to uh, figure these out, to figure these things out. Now, again, the, the house of prayer here is not like the big deal thing in the city. Obviously. The whole church is what Jesus is trying to move within. So every denomination, every church that names the name of Jesus, that's his prized possession in the city. What we're doing is we're like this little mini trumpet kind of blasting into the city. We need to pray. We need to pray. And so that's, we're going to be faithful to that. But the Spirit is certainly raising up a praying church in this hour. So now let's switch gears. Let's think of this woman named Anna. Anna is familiar to some and unfamiliar to others. Turn over to Luke 2, 36 to 38. There's a little sliver about this woman named Anna. Oh, and I just really, Hannah's a neat lady. Luke 2.36, Luke says, I love how he writes it. Now there was one Anna, there was, there was just this, something about Anna. There was this one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She, she was of great age it says, and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow now of about 84 years. So what, what Luke's saying is she got married, lived with her husband a few years, husband dies. She has a choice to make. What do I do? Do I remarry? Do I, you know, serve the Lord? You know, she weighs her options and she does what I think is one of the ultimate decisions that you can make, she decides, I'm going to live in the temple, the temple there in uh, Jerusalem, and I'm never going to leave. I'm going to pray the rest of my life. I think, Anna, wait a second. You're overdoing it. You're, you're in too much pain. You're making a drastic decision. No one does that, Anna. I mean, you got to like go buy groceries and stuff. Anna, let's talk about, I mean, that's, that would be me 
unspiritually trying to talk her out of devotion. Anna says, you know what? I really feel like the Lord's telling me to go into the temple. I, I, I just sense that I'm supposed to be there day and night and pray and fast. Something's coming. I can't put language to it yet. I feel like I need to do this with my, with my life. And so she does. She does this until she's 84. Some scholars interpret this as 84. Some scholars interpret it differently. And, and she could be have done this all the way up until like 104. It depends on how you look at the Greek. Either way you slice that, she spent about you know, 50, 60 years virtually only praying. Again, that we're looking at this through a unique lens of irrelevancy. What were people saying about Anna? Yeah, we heard about Anna. She kind of went off the deep end. She went to the temple, never left. We don't know what really happened to her. Yeah, that's kind of tough to hear. She went crazy. You know, this is the kind of chatter that happens. Even in the church religious world, when someone does something extreme, we kind of go, maybe they got off their rocker a little bit and, you know, maybe, you know, she kind of missed it. Maybe she was supposed to remarry and she's wounded and there's hurt and so she did something, you know, irresponsible and, you know, no one can talk her out of it. She seems pretty determined. Those are the things that get talked about. It's real. I've, I mean, I've had people talk to me in all kinds of different ways. Like prayer every day, every night. Which, are you serious? Like no one does that. Well, people do that. You just don't know about them. And so she becomes like this, the language we would use is like a mystic or a ancient monk. <laughs> she prays in that Jewish temple, Old Testament only, no New Testament. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, I love the New Testament. There's so much riches there. But I mean, they got the New Testament from the Old Testament. But so she's reading the Old Testament. By the way, they don't have Bibles like we do. They have these huge scrolls and it's a huge labor just to get one open and all that. So she's praying. She's got the Old Testament. She looks wildly irrelevant, just like Noah. That's what it looks like. Five years of it, ten years of it. 15 years of it, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. At some point, people are like, she's crazy. <laughs> she missed her life. She missed a chance at you know getting married again and having kids. She just totally missed it. But God is like, no, she's the one lady that's going to get it. She prays, she fasts decade after decade after decade after decade. So much happens in this time. I mean... We, we know this. I mean, a lot happens in your 20s. A lot happens in your 30s. A lot happens in your 40s. And so much happens culturally, family, all of those dynamics. And yet, what's it say? Never left the temple. Served God with fasting and prayers day and night. I'm going to be preaching a whole sermon on Anna forthcoming. It's very significant that the Bible says what she did was service to God. Because prayer and fasting isn't like what we do to get ready for the service. God says that is service. That 60 years of laboring and prayer and fasting, abstaining from so many things, that was, God says, that served me. 
And what happens, what that produces in verse 38 is so overwhelming. She seems irrelevant, 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 decade after decade after decade. Then verse 38, what's it say? Coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him. I'm sorry, and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. In other words, when they brought Jesus into the temple, the baby Jesus, after he'd been born, she goes, I know that guy. (laughs) I've spent my whole life studying him. I found him in the Old Testament. I've been talking to him, and now he's here. He's in the form of a baby, but I know who this is. This is the Messiah. And she goes and becomes the most relevant evangelist In the land in that hour, she looked wildly irrelevant. But now she's the top messenger in the land. How does this happen? See, here's what I'm getting at tonight. In order to be cutting edge in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, you got to look really different right now. And that's what we have to wrestle with as Christians. Are we willing to go deep in our discipleship, in our spiritual formation, and letting God get at us, and getting in the Word, and prayer, so that we know what's happening in the future. Guys, it's hard because we want to be relevant on social media. We want to have opinions that matter. We want to have ministries that look cool, and we want to have the right clothes, and all these things. We want to be relevant, relevant right now. And in some ways, that's not bad. But guys, I want to be ready for what's coming. You know what I'm saying? The whole world was just totally taken off guard by this year. And I got to say this, what's coming in the decades ahead is far more severe. The Holy Spirit is trying to prepare the nations of the earth for the coming of the Lord. And there are dynamics that are intense. There are dynamics that require Christians that have clarity and conviction that are bold, that are saying, I don't want to get out of here and just leave before it gets intense. No, I want to go on mission into the business world, into the missions world, into the finance world. I want to be a person of bright light and clarity and revelation so I can talk to my coworkers or talk to the people on the mission field or whoever's in my sphere of influence. I can tell them this is why it's happening. I mean, Jesus is God. He's, he's coming again soon, and we got to get ready. Now, here's the thing. You say that now, people think you're crazy. But they think you're a little less crazy than they did a year ago. Because people know things are rattling. They don't have, they don't have language for it. But everywhere you look, okay, racial tension, economic tension, there's fires, hurricanes, it's all unprecedented. That's the word they use in the news like every hour of the day. Unprecedented, unprecedented. Things are happening that have never happened before like every day, week, month. These are all what the Bible describes as birth pains. And the people that grasped it and helped the most from cover to cover in Scripture, they looked so weird for a while. And then they were suddenly like, they had the message. You get what I'm saying? I'm going to try to bring this to a close because I'm going long. Now there's John. Let's look quickly at John's life in Revelation 1.9. Flip over to Gen- uh, Revelation 1.9 or click there or tap there. Very briefly, John 1.9. John wrote the book of Revelation. Profound, profound biblical information here. 
Most people think, well, this is confusing. I'm not going to study it. I urge you to study the book of Revelation. It's very... Um, they're, they're, we'll do that another time. <laughs> Let's just give the backstory. The reason why John 1.9 it says, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. So here's what happened. John is a very well-known figure in the church. The Roman government is basically the premier ruler in the earth. They don't like John, so they take John to a penal colony and they imprison him. We don't like what you're saying, John. We're Rome. We're powerful. We don't want you to usurp our government and say there's another king coming. What are you talking about? We have one king, that's Caesar. Stop talking about this other king, Jesus. He, by the way, he's dead. John says he's not. So there's this the church is, is offensive to the Roman government. And so they just either kill the leader or they put him in prison. So John's in prison. And so if you imagine what's happening socially and culturally is the church is being persecuted. And John calls it, we're in tribulation. People are being martyred. The government is oppressive. And they're putting leaders in jail. So that's the social cultural narrative. But what's John thinking about? John's like, I'm encountering God in jail. <laughs> I just love it. John's like, we see what's happening in the natural. But while he's at this penal colony, he has the greatest revelation that's ever been given. He has the book of Revelation unfold before him in a vision, a series of visions, and he writes them all down because God tells him to. I mean, if I had one chapter of this vision, I'd be like, what in the world? He has chapter after chapter after chapter of the craziest vision. And it's all about, let me say it different, Jesus, who gives him this revelation, doesn't really say much about the current social cultural narrative. He says, John, I'm going to take you up and show you heaven. And when John sees God on the throne and angels, he pretty much is like, ah, that stuff down here really doesn't matter in comparison to eternity and God and the angels worshiping. And then he showed me what's going to happen in the near future. It's going to be intense. There's going to be judgments poured out and there's going to be this antichrist and people are going to get saved and some are not going to want to get saved and there's going to be a drama at the end of the age and I, I saw it and I wrote it down. John, we're, we got cultural issues to deal with. We got strife. The church is being persecuted. What are you talking about? John says, we got to get up to a higher narrative. In other words, John, what he was writing about seemed irrelevant. John, we're getting persecuted and put in jail. You're talking about heaven and something going to happen 2,000 years from now? Well, we don't know if it's 2,000 years from now, but the Lord just said, write it down. So anyways, John is seeing things and writing things and sending these, this information out from jail that just, is, it just didn't connect right away, I'm thinking, to your average churchgoer. And so you got Noah who's building things that seem irrelevant. Anna's making life choices that seem irrelevant. John's writing blogs and letters and books that are just have no connection to the current 
crisis in the culture. And yet, Noah knew what was coming. And he's suddenly the most relevant guy. Anna is the first evangelist. Did you know the first evangelist in church history is a woman? The first person to connect the dots. Her name's Anna. And how did she connect the dots? She spent her whole life praying and fasting. I'm not saying you have to do that to you know, connect the dots, but that's what she did. And the Lord honored her for it. We'll get to heaven and we'll see all of Anna's converts. And uh, the whole discussion about women in ministry will end very quickly. Because the thousands upon ten thousands, Anna led me to the Lord. And by the way, I love women in ministry. They preach here often, all that. But there's like so many ridiculous controversies in the church. And I'm like, the first evangelist. By the way, who did Jesus appear to first? Mary Magdalene told the disciples that he's back from the dead and they didn't believe her. So, I mean, he just loves to use women. So, women, let's go. Come on. God wants to use you. Not, not 50 years from now, right now. Yeah, my wife likes that. Woo. She's a cool preacher. That's the gist of it tonight, gang, is there is this, if we want to be like this city on a hill, if we want to be like a bright light in our generation and in our community or in our workplace or in our church, etc., etc., there's a direction God's going to lead us that people won't understand. Not everybody will understand. It's okay. God may call you to build something that people don't get. It's okay. Just smile and keep building. Be teachable. Be open. I mean, I have people say the most ridiculous things to me. Okay, I'll pray about that, brother. Thank you. And there's sometimes a sliver of truth in the most ridiculous statements. But, you know, there's people who be like, I think you need to just quit that whole thing. That's such a weird... No, that's what God told me to do. Just because you don't get it doesn't mean it's not God. You know, I just think of all the people in the Bible who just... No one had a clue what they were doing. I mean, the father of our faith and the mother of our faith, essentially, Abraham and Sarah, they just, God says, just start going to a new land and I'll kind of just tell you on the way. And by the way, I'm going to give you a son. We're like 100 years old. What? So much is just, we do it by faith. We do it in obedience and it makes sense along the way. Some of you are going to write things. You're going to study scripture It's going to click with you, but no one's going to just write it, send it out. It's going to help someone. Some of you are going to have to make life choices. You know, the the Spirit's going to emphasize certain things to you. And you're going to make life choices that others are like, what? You're going to waste your life. No, no, normal people do this and this. And I feel the Lord saying, go over here. You know, uh, seven years ago, I made, I made a life choice. I, I had a really good job and, you know, comfortable life set out for me in the corporate world. And the Lord said, eh, you're doing house of prayer. Start going that direction. He confirmed it by a number of miracles. And so here we are seven years later. A lot of people were like, what are you doing? You're set. You're good. And I'm thinking, I, got so- I know there's something coming there is stuff happening in our generation. I got to be more prepared and I want to help prepare others. And I'm feeling a little bit more justified lately. You know, just seeing what's happening in the world this year. I'm like, this was a right decision. If I can help a few more people understand that 
We need to be a prepared bride. We need to be sons and daughters of the Father and disciples of Jesus Christ that are just wholeheartedly in love with Him and on fire for God. If I can help a few more people go that direction, success, check. Let's do it. Irrelevant. We don't make it our aim to just be irrelevant. But as you obey the Lord and your specific calling, what you're supposed to do, people won't understand always. People will, what are you, what kind of ministry are you building? What, a company, what? You know what they said to Jeff Bezos when he started building an online library? What's the internet? What's that? You're going to just sell books? Yeah, well, why don't they just go to the library then if they want books? No, no, I'm going to sell like millions of books. Ah, we, you should watch how the founding of Amazon happened. And now they control the whole world, basically. Now you just click and it's at your door like a minute later. It's freaky. God's going to ask you to do things. Maybe it's the business world. Maybe it's finance, medicine, teaching, ministry. It doesn't always look like everybody else does it. Sometimes it looks irrelevant for a season and then it clicks down the line. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I've preached your word as best as I can. And so, Holy Spirit, now would you make it alive to each heart here tonight. Connect it with them personally. Let it be applicable to their specific situations and callings and emphasis and personality. Holy Spirit, do your thing. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And anybody that's still on Facebook Live, we want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, what we're going to do here now is just have a time of prayer together. And uh, we'll, we'll log off here on Facebook uh, here in a moment. So um, let's go ahead and we'll just kind of circle up here. Come on up and we'll, we'll pray into this uh, for 10 or maybe 15 minutes or so. We'll end with that. So come on up.